Martini and Rich Lincoln. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. The holiday season continues on Legal Face Off, the final episode of December. I've been told Hanukkah is over, so Christmas can finally arrive. Rich Lincoln, Tina Martini, the Legal Eagles are here, and I come to you from the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts. How's everybody doing today? This is a big show, Sam. In addition to our amazing guests like Dale, it's a big show for Sam. Last show ever on Legal Face-Off. I wouldn't say ever, at least for now. No, lose, my, lose my number. Lose my number after this show. <laughs> I think Tina's implying that if uh, Nesson doesn't work out, you're going to come limping back to our little podcast here. <laughs> Might have to. Might have to. We'll get to that later on in the show. We've got you're a heavy... We've got a heavy list per usual. We'll talk about Trump's census plan. We've got a lawsuit on CPS reopening offices and remote working, how that situation plays itself out. And of course, the legal grab bag at the end of the show. But we begin talking about President Trump's census plan. And to do so, we bring in Dale Ho, director of the ACLU Voting Rights Project. Dale's also an adjunct professor of clinical law at NYU Law, and he joins us now to lead things off on Legal Face Up. Dale, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So, Dale, just on Friday, the Supreme Court said that it was premature to rule on the constitutionality of the Trump administration's plan to exclude undocumented immigrants from the census count. You actually represented some of the challengers. Where does this ruling on Friday now leave this policy? It means we're in wait and see mode right now. What the court said was, we just don't know how much of this policy the Trump administration is actually going to be able to implement. Uh, we don't know how many undocumented immigrants they're going to be able to identify. There are even some media reports suggesting that the census numbers for state-by-state population totals and divvying up the House of Representatives might not even be ready until after inauguration and a new administration is in. So with all of those uncertainties, the Supreme Court said, let's just wait and see what happens. Now, our view is this policy is clearly unconstitutional. So if the administration tries to go forward with it, we'll sue and we'll be right back in court again. So, Dale, tell us what you learned about the fact that this was an unsigned decision and that Justices Breyer, Kagan and Sotomayor were in the dissent. Well, I think that tells us that uh, the fact that we got a dissent, um, you know, gave me a little bit of comfort that uh, our arguments um about as to why this is so illegal and unconstitutional. Remember, this has never been done in American history. Every census and division of representation in the House has been based on the total population of each state without making distinctions about who's a citizen, who's undocumented, et cetera. Um, so the fact that we got a dissent from three justices, I think, was encouraging for us. The fact that the um, unsigned opinion didn't say anything positive about the administration's plan and, you know, suggests that it might be even in part constitutionally permissible. Um, all of that we are encouraged by. Dale, I listened to uh, a lot of the arguments. It's amazing that you could literally, you know, listen to the arguments already. And what struck me was a lot of things struck me, but in particular, I was impressed with some of the more conservative leading justices, especially in the newest justice, uh, you know, Judge Barrett, who asked some tough questions of uh, acting Solicitor General Jeffrey Wall, um, including, you know, in essence, how can you find that someone who has been living in this country, albeit 
you know, in an undocumented status for 20 years, how can you not count that person? Uh, I found that exchange fairly interesting, given what we think we know about Justice Barrett's background. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Both she and Justice Kavanaugh um, expressed a lot of skepticism about the administration's position. And look, I don't want to give anyone any illusions. Um, If you're a civil rights lawyer, litigating in front of this court is going to be difficult over the next few years. But this is an issue that I think we should have a relatively easy time with the court's, you know, self-identified originalists and textualists. The Constitution is very clear. It says you give states representation based on the whole number of persons in each state. Uh, Undocumented immigrants are clearly persons, regardless of their status under the law. And this has been the practice throughout American history. So for a justice who purports to be interested in history and fidelity to it, um, I think this is actually an easy case. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh in particular, but some of the other justices spend some time talking about uh, this idea of standing and whether this issue was ripe yet and about whether it was practical for the administration to even implement this policy. For example, how would they go about counting uh, by the deadline, the amount of uh, undocumented immigrants, given that the pandemic has already pushed back the census considerably. So as you go forward on this issue, if you go forward, which is a big if, given that, you know, we have a new president coming in soon and it's likely unlikely that Biden will do anything close to this. But if this decision came up again, are you discouraged by the fact that the issue was not determine on a substantive basis? Or do you think that there was some substantive analysis applied here? Well, obviously, we would have preferred a decision that just said that this was completely illegal and unconstitutional and everyone can pack their bags and go home. But, you know, the administration was trying to, I think, get the court to say something positive, at least about parts of this policy. Maybe, you know, not saying anything about undocumented immigrants as a whole. There are 10 and a half million undocumented immigrants in this country. Um, most of whom, you know, live, uh, have lived here for, for quite some time, but maybe to say something like, oh, well, people who are in detention or who are in removal proceedings, you can definitely exclude those folks. And the court didn't bite on that, um, didn't say anything about whether or not any parts of this policy might be permissible. So I, I take some comfort in that, and I'm encouraged um, by that fact. And I do think the administration has a hard job Um, But they've been trying to collect records on the undocumented population for the last year and a half. So it's possible they have put something together. And, you know, even if those those stats and that data aren't uh, the most accurate in the world, this relationship has this administration has, I think we'd all agree, a pretty loose relationship with um, facts and truth. So it's not impossible. They'll try to come up with something. And if they do, then we'll see them in court again. So, Dale, what was more exciting for you, appearing before the Supreme Court or in a commercial with Ike Barinholtz? <laughs> Definitely uh, appearing before the Supreme Court, not to take anything away from Ike, who's um, lovely and uh, hilarious. Um, um, that was a lot of fun, but um, appearing in front of the Supreme Court on this issue a couple of times has definitely been the highlight of my professional career. He is Dale Ho, director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, also a professor of clinical law at NYU Law. Dale, thank you so much for your time. Happy holidays. Thanks so much for having me. 
We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Joining us next on Legal Faceoff to discuss a really important issue that is literally breaking as we speak is uh, Alderman since 1999 for the ninth ward, Anthony Beal. Alderman, thanks for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thanks for having me. So literally when I say breaking news, uh, Alderman, this is happening as we speak. I was just watching uh, the last few minutes of the Lori Lightfoot press conference from earlier today Mm -hmm. in which she told reporters that she was not aware of this video involving Anjanette Young until just yesterday. A lot of us find that hard to believe given that this video has been around and in the city government for a while. Bring us up to speed on your perspective on uh, what the mayor knew and when she knew it. Well, I mean, I can't tell you exactly what she knew and when she knew it. However, based on my 22 years of experience in the city, uh, you know, the the mayor or the mayor's office, uh, somebody had to have known exactly what was going on with this. Um, The way the city runs and the way it's structured, uh, any press outlet calls the press office for any comment as it relates to the administration. And then the press office in turn reaches out to the mayor's office um, as far as uh, looking for comment. And so they are aware of everything that is going on. And so it's very, very hard to believe that the, the mayor or her top two or three people did not know that this, number one, that this story was going to be coming out uh, and that it was going to be damaging. And then at the same time, we're hearing conflicting stories that when or when the mayor knew about uh, this incident. Uh, first, she said she didn't know anything about it until Tuesday morning. And now we're hearing, uh, well, we do have emails going back. But when did you know it? And, and I think the people deserve to know, you know, if, you know, you knew about this ahead of time and if this is possibly being covered up. Yeah, it's it's fairly hard to believe that this is still happening, uh, Alderman, in light of what we saw just a few short years ago with in the Laquan McDonald case. How, you know, with all of the discussion that Lori Lightfoot had and all the promises she made with regards to transparency, um, especially with her background on these issues, how, you know, there could, the, the CPD could still hold on to this body cam video showing this egregious event for well over a year. I mean, how is this still happening? Well, again, it's still happening because, you know, it's easy when you're on the outside of government throwing darts on the inside. Once you're on the inside, you see exactly how hard it is to govern. And it is very, very difficult to govern. However, but if you campaign and make all these pledges that you're going to be this reformer, that you're going to, you know, bring all this transparency in. And then once you get in, that you are direct opposite of what you campaigned on is troubling to the people because you're not exactly what the people voted for as far as change and transparency. Basically, we're getting worse than what we had. And so, you know, it's very troubling and the people really need to be concerned and we need to get to the bottom of this. And, you know, you know, I'm going to implore everybody, especially all my colleagues, to really, really take a hard look at this and find out exactly what's going on. Because if we're not being told the truth on this, what else in this administration are we not being told the truth on? 
So to that point, several of your colleagues have called uh, for a special city council meeting tomorrow at 2 p.m. Is that happening or is that now off or what's the no, status? They, they rescinded that because there is a, a subject matter hearing tomorrow, um, you know, on some of this reform issue. And I have problems with that, you know, to, to have an immediate subject matter hearing on this issue when there's issues that are out in committee that we've been trying to get out and we can't get out because the mayor's office is sitting on them and don't want these issues to come out. Now, all of a sudden, when we get in a bind, we want to have an emergency subject matter hearing. And listen to me closely. Subject matter. That means no vote, no substance. And this is just going to be a dog and pony show to try to cover up exactly what's going on and try to create some buffer as far as what's happening in this city. If we're going to have true substantive change in this city, you don't have a subject matter hearing. You have a hearing that's going to have an order attached to it that's going to have the city council vote and have an order for the police superintendent or COPA or somebody to make substantive change to where they don't have a chance to not do what we're telling them to do. An order means you are ordered to do just that. Alderman, in the video that now has been seen, thankfully, finally, by you know many millions of people, we see Anjanette Young telling the Chicago Police Department no fewer than 43 times that they're in the wrong home. Uh, we've seen similar videos across the country, ironically, during a time when the movement for social justice um, you know, has reached lots of people over the summer and, and even even now. Um, where do we stand today in our city with regards to relations between police and the public, especially among minority groups, many of whom uh, uh, you represent in your ward? What is the current status of that relationship, especially given the travesty that we saw in this video? Right. Well, let me just say, if, if it had not been for body cams, we still wouldn't be talking about this today. It will still be happening over and over again in the city, and it will constantly be swept under the rug, and nobody wouldn't have the finest of our, as far as what's happening. So thank, thankfully, we have body cams now that's bringing light to all these issues so people can actually see why the black community does not trust the police, why the black community doesn't you know, come forth with information, because they don't trust the powers that be. And now you're starting to see exactly why. And so how do we change that narrative? Well, you have to change the narrative by passing substantive change and not having subject matter hearings. You have to pass substantive change to give people the ability to voice their concern and let them know their voices are being heard and we're following through on their voices and their voices are not falling on deaf ears. Alderman Anthony Beal uh, from the Ninth Ward here in the city of Chicago. Thank you for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Please come back and uh, update our listeners and our viewers on this very important topic. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach Mike Ditka. 
and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And after you listen to Legal Face Off, make sure you rate and review the show. Joining us now, he is the president of the Chicago Teachers Union, Jesse Sharkey, to talk about the potential of Chicago public schools reopening and what could come from that. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Jesse, on Thursday, the Illinois Educational Labor Relations Board issued a 2-1 vote denying your union's request Um Again, CPS for plans. For injunction, right? Yeah, CPS plans to reopen. Um, what was your objection to the CPS plan? Well, at the heart of it is uh, really our demand that CPS bargain with us about uh, what safety looks like in schools in uh, in a period of of a pandemic. Um, we put forward our a reopening plan, which we think addresses uh, you know what should be the key concerns. Um, we're not you know, miles apart in all the elements of it, but the, but like, so it's worth saying what we are a part on. Um, one of the big things we're a part on is whether, what the public safety, the public health metric is, uh, how, how much um, positivity, how much transmission of the virus should there be when they reopen. So there's a big issue there. There's, there's a few others. Um, we don't have an agreement on that. So we went to the board to say, um, the board is basically not saying they won't bargain with us on that on that question. And so we're saying that actually constitutes failure to bargain with us in good faith. So, Jesse, to that point, CPS said that the sides have met to discuss these issues 43 times, including twice per week since August, with discussions about improving ventilation systems at the schools and claims that with proper mitigations in place, classrooms are safe. The IELRB said that it wasn't clear whether these were bargaining sessions or whether the subject matter is a permissive or mandatory subject of bargaining. Do you care to comment on that? Sure. Uh, CPS has been super clear that it, it isn't bargaining with us over the overall decision to open um, or about the, um, the larger public health metric. And we think that goes to the heart of the matter. Um, Really, what we're saying is that, um, uh, you know, the, the safety and health for people who work in a, in a workplace, and schools are a workplace for 40,000 some odd people, 25,000 of those people are our members. Um, if you can't bargain about that, then there's no such thing as collective bargaining. So, so we really think this is a pretty cut and dried case. They've argued in the alternative. Um, and, um, you know, we think it would be we think it would be appropriate for the board to make a ruling on this. Jesse, your critics understand that you've got a job to do and you've got a constituency being the you know, teachers union. But this is a bigger issue, obviously, than just the teachers. And we're talking about the health and safety of students who have been you know, kept inside for months and months. And mostly across the country, we're seeing success stories when students are returning to classes. So talk to us about the challenge in balancing the needs of your constituency, but also, you know, working for a school system where children are supposed to come first. Right. Well, and my own, my own family, I mean, I've got two kids at public school, our vice president is three, uh, you know, and I will say that our members 
really want to get back to school in person. It, teaching remotely is exhausting. And um, one of the main sustaining features of school, which is all the interplay, uh, the joy that you have around students learning, um, you know, children are joy. And uh, we're deprived of that. And that makes it makes that part of our job a lot harder. So we'd like to get back. Um, I, I think that like for us, um, the balance is the understanding that like there's a bunch of mitigating factors. And, and the reason that you've had schools open in a number of places and have, it, and, and have there be relatively low transmission coming out of that is it's not just that kids are wearing masks. But you put that, and then a lot of school districts um, have a very small number of kids back. So in New York, for example, uh, there's 160,000 kids attending New York schools. Um, when the system is full, it's got 1.2 million students. So, you know, about one out of eight kids are actually back in the buildings. And those kids are going back half time. So you, you get the idea. So you a lot of social distancing and, 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 and a lot of kind of mitigating factors. Then if you add health checks, if you get decent ventilation, which they have in New York, um, you, you know, if you have relatively low level of transmission, again, which they had in New York, you put all those factors together and I think it can be safe. We're trying to, to be able to get agreements that those factors are going to be in place. Um, and that's the problem right now where we haven't gotten to agreements. I'm not saying we can't get to agreements, but the, the, the district's insistence that it has the ability to kind of just unilaterally impose its terms is actually in the way here. Uh, it's, and I think it's ultimately going to make the whole prospect of going back to school less safe. And I think it's going to um, ultimately wind up delaying when we're able to like actually open school in person for students. So, Jesse, last question. On Friday, we learned that the CPS CEO, Janice Jackson, is getting a $40,000 raise, bringing her annual base pay up to $300,000. In light of the issues we're discussing, what's the union's position on this increase? I mean, first of all, it's terrible timing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> right? I, you know, look, I, it, it's, it's a lot of money for public servants. You know, it's a lot more than... Um, teachers make, that's for sure. I, I, you know, to me, really, though, the, the key thing we're dealing with right now, the, the, the big issue in the table, you know, has to come back to this pandemic. You know, in, in parts of the city where you've got uh, people who work service sector jobs, who live in crowded multi-generational housing, whose health care access wasn't that good to begin with, those folks are dying. I mean, it's bad. It's, it's a bad time. And so it's more important than ever that people establish trust. Maybe the Janice Jackson issue goes to trust. But I think that like far more important than that would be if they could get an agreement with, uh, with, with the teachers that included kind of a public health metric that included some uh, ways that we would know that we could enforce it um, and then and had some things in terms of student equity. And, and I think that would allow us to say, yep, um, people in Chicago, you know, the teachers feel like it's safe to go back to, and that would make it, the whole project more successful when we can get to the right criteria. Chicago Teachers Union President Jesse Sharkey joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you so much. Please come back, keep our listeners and viewers posted on this important story, and have a great holiday season. I appreciate you guys. Thanks and stay safe. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and 
and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Our final guest before the legal grab bag here on Legal Faceoff is Zach Needles, editor-in-chief of Law.com. And Zach wrote up a piece on Law.com about law firms having a presence that no longer requires having an office. Zach joins us now to talk about it on the show. Hey, Zach, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Zach, in your article featured last week on Law.com, you discussed how some firms have been aggressively recruiting lateral talent throughout the pandemic, even in geographies where those firms do not currently have physical offices. Can you explain this phenomenon in a bit more detail? Sure, absolutely. Um, So, obviously, the, the pandemic forced the entire world to kind of adapt to this new reality overnight. It's been really interesting to see law firms have to do it because, as everybody on this call probably knows, the legal industry is sometimes behind the curve when it comes to evolving. Really, they had to adapt to a remote structure overnight. And I think to a lot of law firm leaders' surprise, it worked really well. Uh, remote work has been, by and large, a success. And so what's happening now is some firm leaders are starting to think, well, you know, when you go to look for a lateral hire, whether it's a group or it's a one-off lateral, A lot of times that involves making an infrastructure investment, such as a a law office, brick and mortar law office, which can be really expensive. And if it doesn't work out, then you're out a lot of money. So a lot of law firm leaders now are starting to look at this idea of, well, what if we just let the new hire work remotely? Um, They won't have an office to go to, but they can work from home. And we don't have to shell out so much money up front to bring on new talent. Yeah, you know, everyone's looking at that. I'm at a small firm. I'm one of the owners of a 30-person firm, Zach, and we're, you know, looking at that every day. And every day I'm at home, yet paying rent for a big space downtown on LaSalle Street, where I'm wondering the same thing. So as it relates to recruiting talent, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting time and it's it's been an interesting evolution over the last few months because initially when the pandemic struck, everyone was worried about their jobs, right? Uh, young Younger associates were worried because there was massive layoffs um, and some more seasoned attorneys were worried about their book of business being shrunk because of, you know, obvious reasons. So now that we're stabilizing a little bit more, one of the issues that everyone's looking at is how to continue to compete by... Um, hiring, you know, strong talent. How does the space issues that you've just talked about and working from home relate to that? In other words, um, do young associates, do young attorneys want to work more from home? Um, Or do they, you think, want to go back to an office environment or some hybrid of the two? Well, I think that's kind of the rub. I think there are plenty of young lawyers who do enjoy the freedom of working remotely. But I think specifically when you're talking about young lawyers, the thinking right now that I've heard so far is that they really do need to spend some time in the office. I think a lot of them would say that. I think a lot of senior partners would say, 
hey, you need FaceTime with people who have been around, who know what to do, who have experience. You need to be able to learn through observing and be really mentored in that way. So I don't know that we're going to see a ton of especially hiring of young lawyers who are going to work full-time remotely. I think this is really more of a trend for more senior partners who can sort of, they kind of already are established. Ostensibly, they can take care of themselves. They don't need so much oversight and they don't need so much kind of on the ground training. Now, I do think that firms are going to be a lot more flexible. And we've already seen this with a lot of firms, more flexible with allowing even younger lawyers to work from home for a part of the week or whenever, you know, whenever it's necessary. But I don't think you're going to see as much full-time remote uh, work from younger lawyers, just because I think it does um, impede the career development aspect a little bit. So Zach, I mean, clearly there are some advantages to the working from home, as you mentioned, Um, having the ability to look at talent a different way geographically, as well as looking forward to potentially reducing infrastructure costs. But there are also potentially some issues with regard to recruiting folks um, outside of a firm's existing geographic footprint. And one of the things that you wrote about was potential tax consequences. Can you walk us through what that issue is specifically and any other issues that firms are dealing with um, who are looking to recruit folks in places where they may not have offices? Absolutely. And my colleagues, uh, Dylan Jackson and Dan Packle, have done a lot of research and reporting on this aspect. They've done a great job with it. And one of the things that they've found is, like you said, first of all, the tax implications. If you're going to have somebody work in, say, Wyoming, and you don't want to open an office there, there are still there is still a good chance you're going to be taxed according to Wyoming's laws based on it, it'll basically be treated as though that person's home is their office. So you do have to think about that. The more uh, scattered your geographic footprint becomes, even if you're not opening brick and mortar offices, there are tax implications for the folks who work there. And then you're dealing with a lot of different state tax regulatory schemes that you're having to kind of maneuver and and navigate. Um, You know, one of the other issues, you know, I already touched on the young lawyer career development, but I also think we may be overestimating the number of partners who actually want this arrangement. One of the things that a legal consultant told me uh, after my article came out was, hey, we're definitely seeing firms exploring this. There are definitely partners who would love to just not have an office that they have to go to. But by and large, what they've heard is that a lot of partners want to know that there's a place they can go. They want to be close to some sort of you know, output post or the mothership, as it's called sometimes, if they're closer to the headquarters. They want to know that they can go in. They just don't want to feel obligated to go in. And so it may be that as firms start kicking the tires on this idea, they, they find more potential laterals who say, you know, I really don't want to work remotely full time. I want to at least know there's a place I can go. I think that kind of remains to be seen. Yeah, Zach, final question is your article touches on and it actually quotes some firm leaders um, about this whole emerging idea of not having a bricks and mortar office. And, you know, what my research reveals is that a lot of these firms are promising um, compensation much higher than existing firms. And the obvious reasons, as you stated, are that the two biggest drivers of cost in any law firm are payroll and rent generally. And if you eliminate one of those or largely eliminate one of those, you're taking away a large, um, you know, driver of cost. So 
is this the model going forward? I mean, you know, when you look at the compensation, especially for partners, like you mentioned, at least what they're promising is a stark difference. I mean, you know, I'm hearing about firms promising something like 80 to 90% of what you bring in versus, you know, the traditional offer model, which is way south of that. So what do you think of the model going forward? Yeah, that's going to be really interesting, especially for firms that are making that transition. I mean, the firms that are already distributed firms or virtual firms, whatever you want to call them, you know, they started with that model. Moving to that model is going to be a different story. And I do think there's going to be an expectation from talking to law firm consultants. There is going to be an expectation from some partners and and even younger lawyers like, Hey, if I don't, if there's not overhead that you're paying, shouldn't I get, shouldn't I see some of those savings too? The counter to that, though, that's going to be interesting is if you're working in, if you live in a place where the cost of living is much lower than, say, where the New York City office was, and now you live somewhere in Rhode Island or whatever, where you're still doing the same work, but you don't have as much of a cost of living, is the firm actually going to take that into account and want to pay you less? So that's going to be another place where the rubber kind of meets the road. Um, you know, I think the the attorneys are going to be expecting more and the firms may be taking a look and saying, well, it doesn't cost you as much to, to work where you live. Do we need to pay you as much? Um, that's going to be a really interesting kind of push-pull dynamic. And another thing that kind of remains to be seen. And it may be one of those things that ultimately scares firms off from this from this idea. I mean, the only other thing I would add to that is this is definitely not going to be a model that every firm can go to. Some firms are very top down. They're not going to want to relinquish the control that you have to relinquish when you have remote employees. Some firms don't have a very good system of communication between different offices. And if you add remote employees to that, it's going to become even worse. So I'm not suggesting this is going to be a wave that just overtakes the entire legal industry. But for some firms, I think it is going to be um, a pretty enticing opportunity to grow. He is Zach Needles, Editor-in-Chief, Law.com. Great stuff, Zach. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It is time for the Legal Grab Bag here on Legal Faceoff. Drink your water, get ready to rock, get ready to roll. Rob Snow is here, creator and CEO of the Improvenier Method. Hey, Rob, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Also joining us, Don Sriton, who's the Senior Regional Manager of Fine Wine at the Frederick Wildman & Sons. Hey, Don, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Looking forward to chatting. And Joe Brand has joined the party. Hmm, I wonder why, from WGN Radio, the uh, pride of Oaklawn, Illinois. What's up, Joey? Hey, not much, Sam. Nice to meet you. I, I've never met you before. I've never seen uh, it's, you. Yeah, there's definitely uh, no truth to that. So the deal here, legal grab bag, we've got seven topics per usual. We'll rip through them, one through seven in order. And the first topic, Rich, involves a home raid. Before we start, though, I just got to give some context. So Don is my uh, partner on Cubs season tickets. And, oh. you know, we had a good thing going there for our first year. And alas, not this last year. So that's how Don and I know each other. And then uh, Rob and I have known each other for years and years. And Rob, I want to give a shout out to the organizations that you founded and you're involved with because you do incredible work. In addition to what Sam mentioned, just tell our listeners a little bit about Stand Up for Downs. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Uh, Stand Up for Downs started, um, it was kind of a combination. I used to have a background in some, some comedy, uh, started right there in Chicago. Um, and then uh, a lot of Second City stuff, Improv Olympic, all that. 
And then I quit that uh, sometime around 2000. I gave it about three or four good years and then quit and uh, started a real job, real life, real work. That's where our world started to collide, Rich, uh, in, the, uh, in the space that we're in. And then in 2009, I, we had our second son, Henry, who's born with Down syndrome. And both those, uh, the comedy and the Down syndrome community yeah. somehow collided. And my passion for both got in. So Stand Up for Down started as a, as a nonprofit um, to enhance the lives of those with Down syndrome through, through comedy. And we would just raise a ton of money. And then a few years ago, I, I thought about those improv roots and uh, I started thinking about a way to uh, use improvisation to uh, build skills within people with developmental disabilities that would greatly increase their social work and uh, lifetime opportunities. So we created the Improvineer Method, and that's been going on about three years now. We're the, we're the, the biggest of what we do now, and, uh, and the pandemic's been huge for us, man. We, we do all this online now. Uh, it started out doing it all live, and we were like, I think we could do this through Zoom like we're doing now. And uh, we've got over 500 individuals with disabilities around the country uh, each week who participate in our program. So it's pretty cool. Well, congrats, Rob. You've been doing incredible Thank work you. years and years in this field, and uh, it's, uh, it's a real testament to you. So we appreciate it and appreciate the shout out. And we'll, we'll, before we end off, we'll also give people a chance uh, to know where your website is and how to check out the work you're doing. But we're going to start with some breaking legal news, guys, just uh, literally over the weekend broke. So a lot of people across the country, not just in Chicago, saw the Engine at Young video. This, is a, uh, this was a raid by the Chicago Police Department of a lady back in February of 2019. And the video shows um, body cams show um, police breaking in, uh, you know, breaking down her door. And she's literally standing there naked until a officer sometime into the video puts a you know, blanket or some clothes around her. And she's saying, you know, you got the wrong person. This is not, I did nothing wrong. Well, uh, guess what? Here in Chicago, we have a bit of a history in the Laquan McDonald case of police not giving up such videos uh, of alleged, alleged police misconduct very quickly. We saw that, you know, in the Rahm Emanuel situation a few years ago, again, with Laquan McDonald. Well, lo and behold, this video from the incident that took place in February of 19 was not released until just recently, you know, last week, uh, as a result of CBS, local CBS affiliate here, uh, suing the police department and the city uh, under a FOIA request to get the video released. And it took until last week to get this video released. Uh, as a result of this, Mark Flessner, who is the top lawyer in Chicago, the Corporation Council, who represents the city, uh, resigned. Uh, this is in the wake of Lori Lightfoot, our mayor, uh, denying that she was aware of the video initially and then acknowledging that members of her staff, high members of her administration were certainly aware. So this is still unfolding. And again, for the top law enforcement officer of the city to resign in the wake of it is a big deal. But it it's unfortunate, Tina, that we apparently and by we, I mean, you know, the mayor's office and, you know, high ranking officials at CPD have not learned from what we learned in Laquan McDonald, where it took years for that video to surface. And in today's day and age, especially in 2020, when we're dealing with, you know, all of the issues that we're dealing with, especially social, you know, inequality, how they could think that you hold on to this video and not release it. I agree. I think the whole situation is horrifying um, and it's extraordinarily sad. And if I had to bet, my guess is that there are more videos like this and that we're going to continue to see 
these sorts of developments unfold over time. And I agree with you, the fact that the top attorney and corporation counsel resigned over it, I do think that we're going to continue to see the story unfold. I do find it troubling that the mayor has changed her position on whether she knew about it to now saying that she did know about it. Um, It seems like she's trying to rule with the iron fist um, in other aspects of this, Um, but it's just incredibly disappointing and horrifying. Yeah, and and Don, not only did they not release a video, not only did they actively file a lawsuit to prevent its disclosure, but get this, they actually sought sanctions against Angela Young's attorney, which they've now rescinded. But they went to that extreme, which again, like you ask what world they're living in when they are trying to avoid the disclosure of pretty damaging video. Yeah, I mean, to Tina's point, I mean, that was my first thought when I read the article is like, I mean, they're so blatant about it. And like in this day, day and age of like public information and, and certainly video, I, I mean, I, I, like the fact that they're willing to do it and it has been done, like worries me on how much more is out there. Right. I mean, like you said, they filed a lawsuit to stop it. I mean, like, well, I mean, it's just insane. I mean, it really worries me on what else is out there. Yeah, and Rob, the video is is a rough watch. Um, you know, I think on this show That's we've gotta be that we're supportive of police. Police are you know have a really tough job, and there are you know there are occasions when they have to go in you know uh, in this kind of situation. But they they certainly got it wrong here. Yeah, it's it. I go with Tina and Donna. It, it's so. How are their decision makers? You know, behind closed doors, who are still just going nope. Guys, let's not show it. It won't come out. It won't come out. But to Tina's, to Tina's point, how many of these are, have they been right about? You know, if those decision makers are going, probably won't come out. 99 out of 100 of these don't come out. Well, the, I mean, that, and that may be the case. Or eventually they all come out somehow. And that's that's the sickening thing about all of this, I think. Topic number two involves the Supreme Court and the compensation potentially for college athletes. Here we go. Yeah, so last week, the Supreme Court granted cert and agreed to consider and consolidate two cases involving the NCAA. The issue is one that's been debated for years, which is whether the NCAA's restrictions on compensation for college athletes violates antitrust laws. So on one side of the issue, we have current and former student players who challenged the NCAA rules that prohibit athletes from accepting money or other forms of compensation. And on the other side is the NCAA that claims that they need to be able to impose certain restrictions, including on athlete compensation, to try to promote relative competitive equity and to have a product for fans that is different from professional sports. So the NCAA claims that if there's a fundamental change to this arrangement, um, it could have implications for pro sports leagues and other types of businesses. So where the case stands is that in uh, 2019, a federal judge found that the NCAA's restrictions are are anti-competitive and that they have to allow colleges to offer student athletes education-related benefits. Um, The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirmed that decision earlier this year, and it looks like the Supreme Court is going to uh, take a look at this, and we're probably going to get a decision um, in the middle of 2021. 
I would love to hear Sam's thoughts on this, uh, given that you are, um, you know, the sportscaster extraordinaire among us. I found out about 10 years ago, the average Duke basketball player, if they actually calculated how much the average Duke basketball player is worth, it's a million dollars. If you go to the average football player at Alabama, he's worth $600,000. The problem is when you go to a school like Bryant, which is in a small town in Rhode Island, they're worth $10. And that's not to say that they're not worth more than $10, but like they don't make money because people don't go to games. They don't pack stadiums. They don't buy Bryant basketball gear. So it's such a, it's such a weird issue because you have these, you know, blue blood programs that, can turn a profit and do make money, but Duke basketball makes money. Duke lacrosse might not. Alabama football makes money. Alabama tennis does not. So where do you even begin and where does that end? If you start paying one program at one school, the precedent is then built in. So I don't, I, it's a slippery slope, honestly. And I don't know, I don't know that there's a solution to it. Yeah. The courts are going to rule on it. I mean, they've been dancing around the issue for years, but to Tina's point, Joe, the Supreme Court will get to this issue. And I think inevitably they will uphold states like California who have now decided that it's okay to pay college athletes because, again, as Sam said, there, you know, there's no such thing as college athletes anymore. These, these guys and, and women are generating you know, billions of dollars for institutions yet are, you know, I can't afford uh, rent sometimes. And, and, you know, they deserve to be paid something. And the idea that the payment is their you know, tuition and their board does not make any sense to a lot of folks. So, Joe, you're in sports casting also. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, pretty much the same as Sam's. In fact, I wrote down slippery slope because it's just so complicated. You talk about how much money that these players end up creating for these universities. How does that get distributed? I mean, not too long ago, they were actually selling jerseys that had the players' names on the back, and they weren't seeing a dime from that. So how is that fair at all? I, I don't know how you start it because, again, it's complicated, like Sam said, with different programs, the different sports that don't make as much money. But I don't know. I almost feel like there has to be a way where you can guarantee at least some type of physical help later on in life. You know, some of these players are risking their bodies for injuries and some aren't able to go pro. So if there's any way you can just kind of guarantee some help in that regard, I feel like that's at least a step in the right direction. Let's move to topic three here. Let's get juicy. There's a lawsuit with the real housewives. My favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> this show has generated lots of uh, content for us over the years on Legal Faceoff, thank God, because guess what? Rich people sue a lot, and they get sued, so it's good news for us, Joe. Um, so Chum Girardi is a lawyer in uh, Los Angeles, very well-known personal injury lawyer, who apparently has, because many allege, because of his involvement with his wife, who is a real housewife, has squandered a lot of his fortune. And now, according to a December 2nd lawsuit, um, has his fortune has spiraled out of control and to make up for that and to live according to the real housewives lifestyle that he and his wife are accustomed to. He's had to embezzle settlement proceeds intended for widows and orphans of the uh, people who died in the, in the, one of the Boeing 737 crashes. Um, uh, so that's the allegation. Uh, again, the idea is he is fueling his real housewives uh, lifestyle by embezzling funds from these folks. Tina, when will the madness end from Real Housewives? Never. 
And I think it's the madness um, about it that that makes us watch it. I personally haven't watched it. I know a boatload of people who have. So I, I was really offended by this story. I found it really just so awful. Um, and the latest I heard is that she's actually trying to sell some of her used designer clothes. Um, that story broke this morning. So it's never going to end. <laughs> well, and Rob, Rob, the lawsuit also alleges that the divorce that uh, Jane filed was a sham in order to protect their money. I, I don't even, is there a special wing that's going to happen in like prisons just for spouses and people from real housewives? I mean, I feel like there's so many of these people going to jail and getting put on trial. I think it's all part of the drama. It's going to increase, uh, you know, viewership to these these shows. Um, I, I I couldn't even follow. There was so just the story alone. There's enough to make three episodes of this thing on. Um, so it's it's crazy. I I mean I don't think it, it, the crazy thing about I think about all this real TV is none of them realize why we watch. You know, which is because they're all train wrecks of people and 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 they're 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 laughing stocks. I mean, and and, and drama stocks. I mean, that's. That's why we watch, but they're proud of that. And it's just, it's insane to me, but. Don, you love the Real Housewives. I know that. <laughs> uh, actually, no, that's not the case, but <laughs> I do have friends that watch it. And as I read this story, I mean, I think, you know, each of the topics independently, you know, embezzlement um, against that, you know, the widows and then no offense, personal injury attorneys. I'm like, these, this is all very offensive. <laughs> And I mean, it's just, it is absolute, you know, these people can't get out of their own way. It's ridiculous. So we talk Peloton. Tina, do you have a Peloton? Is it hooked up yet? Oh yeah, I'm a big Peloton fan. I think that's part of the reason why uh, Rich was so excited about this story. So yeah, David and I are both really big Peloton people. So um, especially since the pandemic, we got talking about Real Housewives. By the way, you're the Real Housewife of Evanston, right here. That's the most. That's the most Real Housewife statement I've heard in a long time. Hey, yeah. very funny. David and I are Peloton people. Well, the good news is that we got our Peloton before the pandemic, because one of the issues that Peloton has had is that, and Rich, you actually had this issue too, that you had ordered a Peloton yeah. and you were supposed to wait months for it, and then you aborted that mission, right? I did. I picked up one from my neighbor's trash instead. It wasn't quite uh, the Peloton. <laughs> wasn't quite the Peloton quality though. Is that like with the screen cracked in the middle so yeah. you can't watch the program? Like a hammer in the. It was an old busted up bike that I uh, attached an I I iPad to a Generation One iPad. <laughs> Rich, you're gonna hate to hear this. I I got one for my birthday on the 27th of November, and it arrived on December 12th. I got it well, in under three weeks. Wait, you know wow. people. Wait, Rich. I don't know. I don't Rich, know. you I don't built know. your own Peloton? No, I didn't. It, no, didn't. I, Rich, you said you did. You you built your own kind of Peloton. Is that isn't that what this lawsuit's all about? Aren't, aren't you going to be sued next? Right. <laughs> so, in this particular case that was filed last week, um, a company uh, that claims to have founded um, spinning, which is called Mad Dog Athletics, filed in the rocket docket of the Eastern District of Texas, a patent infringement lawsuit against Peloton, claiming that Peloton has infringed a couple of Mad, Dogs at Mad Dog Athletics um, patents. So what's interesting is that MDA was founded in the mid-90s before spinning was really on my radar and most people's radars. 
Um, and the suit claims that Peloton is essentially free riding on MDA's patents. So what's interesting from a timing perspective is that this lawsuit was filed three days after Peloton announced that it was going to be joining the NASDAQ 100 index. Um, and with the, with the uh, pandemic, its sales have skyrocketed. So what's interesting is when you juxtapose that with how MDA has been doing, um, the company has actually suffered some pretty steep financial losses over the past several years. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I didn't have a chance to look at the patents that are under dispute here, um, but under attack the past year, you might remember that there was a big copyright infringement that was filed against them earlier in the year um, because of the songs that they played during their classes. Wow. So it's definitely become a way of life for some people. Yeah. Uh, Don, I had two thoughts on the story. Number one, you get to be as big and successful as quickly as Peloton has an inevitable consequence is lawsuits. So you have the one that the two that Tina just mentioned, you have lots of others. So when you get big quickly like this, uh, everyone's suing, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, 100%. And I think the timing of it, you know, as stated, them going public, and I think I thought I had read that they also are being sued. MDA is being sued by Body Blade, I think they were called. Um, so I think <laughs> easy target, right? Theoretically, a pot of cash that you think they're gonna settle out of court that help compensate the fact that they couldn't market as well. Like that, you know, right or wrong, I realize there's some legal ramifications behind trademarks or patents, but it, it, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that all fleshes out. Rob, defending patent lawsuits is maybe one of the reasons why the Peloton is so damn expensive. <laughs> I would bet it doesn't seem like it. I mean, the, the pool of stationary bikes doesn't, doesn't seem too deep. I, I don't think that's a too novel of a concept. Um, so I would imagine there's a decent amount of stationary bike uh, makers, manufacturers out there who think Peloton uh, stole their idea. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Do you see this amounting to much or uh, off outside settlement or what? Yeah, they'll probably settle it fairly quickly. Yeah. Their, their stock price is through the roof, so they got plenty. Yeah. Of, they got plenty they're, of cash. They're doing all right, right. Yeah. Topic number five is a very, very sad and strange story out of Orange County. The Orange County Register with the latest on Vanessa Bryant, who, of course, is the wife or widow of the late, great Kobe Bryant. She's responding publicly to a lawsuit from her mother, who is demanding financial support and rich. She actually said that Kobe promised to take care of her financially for life. This isn't Kobe's widow. This is Kobe's widow's mother. Yeah, and they're battling it, you know, not just in corporate on social media back and forth. Um, so Vanessa Bryant's mother is alleging that Vanessa Bryant owes her $96 an hour for 12 hours a day for 18 years for watching uh, Vanessa Bryant's kids. And Vanessa Bryant is saying quite publicly that that's nonsense. There was never such agreement. In fact, she did not actually perform those services. So um, you don't see this happening, you know, as openly and as publicly as it is in this case. Um, yeah, unfortunate, you know, uh, it's been about a year since Kobe uh, died and uh, you would hope that the family would resolve this issue on their own. But again, speaking of Real Housewives and Hollywood and, and crazy lawsuits, this is just, this is just powerful, of course. Um, Tina, uh, usually I would think that when you 
allege that you're owed 18 years of back pay, you have some kind of proof of it, uh, you know, maybe a contract, although obviously it's a little tricky when you're dealing with grandparents and grandchildren, but probably as far as uh, the court goes, the lawsuit goes, it's going to be mom versus daughter's credibility. I agree. And, you know, it also just raises other questions. Like if it's 18 years of back pay, why did you wait until your son-in-law passed away tragically to try to get the money? And, you know, why I'm, I'm sure she was, you know, living based on what we've read and just anecdotally, I'm sure she was living a really nice life while Kobe was alive. And I just find her argument just very hard to believe. Um, and it's just, unfortunately, it looks like somebody who's trying to take advantage of a pretty tragic situation. Yeah, Dan, uh, I'm sorry, Don, uh, Rob, Joe, what do you guys think of this one? I, I was, I was offended. I, not offended. I was upset. I was just like, this is just the worst story. And, you know, I, you know, Kobe, Kobe went through his, his, his mistakes in life, of course, as we all know. Um, but, you know, beyond that seemed to be living a pretty exemplary, you know, really contributing so much to uh, society in his own ways and uh, through, through different things. And he really became a very good person, it seemed like. And this is just so, I mean, God, it's just, it's, it's baffling to me, but not baffling. I mean, all these stories are salacious, but man, this one is just disturbing. And I, I agree with everything Tina said. I, I don't think there's a chance that this, that she's doing anything but trying to reap some dollars out of this. It's kind of sick. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to, to the question of like, why, why did mom or, you know, grandma wait until 18 years? I mean, all of a sudden, I think either an attorney uh, contacted her or she saw a pot of gold and decided, you know, it was now time to make some kind of a move. You know, I sadly have a story that's kind of related. My stepfather passed away, I think it's now four years ago, just last week, actually. And my mother is an immigrant, doesn't speak great English, has not worked in years. And so I took um, ownership of kind of trying to help her manage her trust um, to a point where I was actually giving her an allowance on helping her pay her bills and giving her spending money. And I had power of attorney and the attorney I hired for writing up the trust, she hired back to remove my power of attorney uh, because she wanted full control of her own money, which she doesn't know how to spend it. So anyway, it's sad because it has created a bit of a rift between my mother and I, who thought I was after her money when I was actually looking out for her own good. So sorry to make that a long-winded tangent, but it is really mm. a story. Well, and Don, this is more towards the the uh, Kobe Bryant case, but it's just it's a shame when when the children have more common sense than the parents in, in this, these kinds of situations. I mean, Vanessa Bryant has gone through so much, as Rob alluded to, some of the mistakes that Kobe has made. I mean, she's just been a victim in all these circumstances, and now having to raise three daughters instead of four on her own, it, it just it makes me so sad to see that she's got to deal with all this. And, and the person that she's trying to be, she's trying to be the mother right now, her own mother is pretty much bringing her through hell right now. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. Um, tough transition here, but I will try my best. I'll just read the headline. Whiplash from this transition. Son wins lawsuit after mom throws away his best porno mags. Oh, my God. 
this instantly goes into the top five ever list of uh, LGB stories. It's it's there's literally so many so many things in here that are my favorite. I mean, the words of of the great Mike D. Living at home is such a drag that your mom throws away. Truer words have never been spoken because this lawsuit embodies the great Beastie Boys lyric. Uh, so this guy, David Working, forty two years old. That's one of my favorite parts, by the way, that he's forty two. Uh, in 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 Grand Haven, Michigan, has sued his parents for throwing away, in essence, a big box of porn. Um, he said that without his okay, his parents threw away a trove of pornography and an array of sex toys. It could be an array of pornography and a, uh, a trove of sex toys, I guess. It doesn't matter. But in federal court in Kalamazoo, he has filed a lawsuit alleging damages, alleging, get this, my friends, $29,000 or $25,000 worth of porn. Um, he said that he has he's also asked the court for treble damages, which in layman's terms means triple the damages, because uh, he believes they are warranted for the wanton destruction of his property. I got to take a breath before I go on in this story, because there's so, there's so many good things. So... <laughs> I mean, who among us hasn't had a big box of porn discovered by <laughs> one of our parents? And I haven't. <laughs> Nobody else raised their hand but Tina. <laughs> isn't it supposed to be the other way, by the way? Or isn't the kid supposed to, discover, <laughs> to discover the parents' uh, stash? I don't know. I'll go first since nobody else clearly wants to. That's a lot of money, man. A lot of porn. <laughs> oh, that too. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Should we? I mean, do you alert? Do you alert the kid of, of the internet, or do you let him know about the internet, or what do we? <laughs> yeah, this is like this is like Boner Jams 2002 from. Uh, I'm a 40-year-old virgin. I mean, yeah, yeah. this really doesn't know about the internet. I feel like if we were all given a piece of blank paper right now and a pencil, we would draw within a couple pounds the the exact this person, this 40-year-old man. I think we would all draw the exact same person. The greatest part is it says he only realized this after he moved in with his parents after a divorce, after he got divorced. By the way, what a surprise that this guy Sorry. wasn't snapped up, wasn't snapped up on the open market with his box of $25,000 worth of porn, right? And then it, this is the best. He later realized, not that they got rid of all of it, but that a, uh, a dozen boxes of films and magazines were missing. A dozen boxes... Like, does this guy have a porn storage warehouse somewhere? How do you realize that only a dozen were missing? Oh, my God. What I want to know is why this guy wasn't selling it so that he could move out of his parents' house, for God's because sake. Because it was 2010, because no one's buying boxes of porn. <laughs> well, just keep in mind that if he actually wins this, all he's doing is validating every husband or son that's been exposed of their erotic collection. They're, they're collectibles. I read them for the articles, not, nothing else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, thanks, buddy, for ruining it. Don, where do you keep, Don, I see you're in a, there's a closet behind you. Give us a peek into the three-tongue box of porn. The closet. <laughs> it all falls out. Over. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that would have been gold. If <laughs> Sam, when you, Sam, when you moved from Chicago to Boston, did you have to hire a separate trailer for your box of porn? <laughs> no. No. You're selling it? No, I don't have porn, Meg. Sorry. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> 
He has the internet. Right. <laughs> All right. Topic number seven. Let's move on here. And let's close it up with holiday lawsuits. I actually thought this was a pretty good list put together by the Reeves Law Group. They came together with 17 holiday-themed lawsuits that, quote, even a Grinch would hate. So, yeah, so these are some amazing suits, and we just don't have the time to go through all of them. They're all terrific. So I thought I would kick off our little roundtable discussion of what our favorite lawsuits were from this list by mentioning a couple of them that were my favorites. I mean, I got to tell you, this male genitalia gift that this Trader Joe's employee got um, during the holiday party was, I think, probably my favorite. There were a couple of close seconds, but um, apparently um, this guy who worked for Trader Joe's went to a Christmas party. People got gifts. This was his gift. It was a small um, reproduction of male genitalia that when put in water grew to a much larger size. Um, he was teased by his employer about it. He felt embarrassed and humiliated, and he actually filed a complaint about it. And then he was terminated by the company um, on the grounds that his work was unsatisfactory. And then he ended up, um, a lawsuit ensued. And so apparently this one's still pending, um, but I thought this one was pretty funny. And then I got to say the um, Anthrax holiday sweater yeah. was my second. Um, always got to come back to music. So there was a businessman in Michigan who designed uh, one of those ugly Hanukkah sweaters. And um, he found that uh, his design ended up being appropriated by Anthrax. He ended up seeing this um, holiday sweater for sale that looked exactly like his, except it had the Anthrax name on it. And so he's seeking a million dollars in damages. He filed suit. Um, I thought this one was pretty hilarious too. Yeah, I like the anthrax one. A lot of these, a lot of these are actual serious lawsuits about the you know placement of religious objects like menorahs or like Christmas trees on government entities. So you know, a little more serious than our usual holiday themed lawsuits, but all fun. Nothing says the holidays rob snow like lawyers and litigation, right? It seems to come up. It seems to be a part of life, right? Uh, lawyers aren't going anywhere and litigation isn't, right? Um, I, I kind of like the, I, I had a little, with the, um, the anthrax one, I, when I moved to this town, I'm in a town in Ohio called Medina. And <clears throat> there was this cool woodworking shop in town made antiquated wood and metal kind of fabrication stuff. And I went in and I said, I want this sign for our basement. We just redone our basement. I want a big sign, part metal, part old, old restored wood. And it would say funky cold Medina. Medina. Right? Funky cold. The guy was like, the guy was like 28 years old. And I was like, right? Funky cold Medina. And he's like, okay. He had no clue. He had no clue where that came from. So he just thought I was a guy saying funky cold Medina for no reason. So he had no clue. And then he makes it. He puts a picture of it online and he and I go in to pick it up and he goes, hey, man, this idea is incredible. I'm, get, I'm getting requests for this like crazy. And I'm going, I go. So how do you know, how does this work? Like that's the first thing I said to him, I go, so how does how do I get paid off this? How does this work? <laughs> he goes, I, mean, I didn't necessarily say that, but I was kind of implying. And he was like, so here's your sign. I was like, all right, I'll just take the sign. 
So I'm sure I get that's it, man. The first I, action Tone Loke would have been getting um, oh, is, is, is what you just did with uh, Funky Cold Medina. <laughs> I could have brought Tone back in one sweep. Tone Loke and Funky uh, old antiquated metal wood products. Yeah. <laughs> I see you grinning, Rich. I'm waiting for something else. I thought you had something else to add. Just, to thinking, of, just thinking in my head of Tone Loke, the great immortal Tone Loke, who, by the way, is had a great little role in uh, one of my favorite films of all time, Heat, little known. Uh, oh, he did. He did. By Tone Loke and Heat. I'm showing my son Heat uh, in the in this this weekend for the first time. We, we came up with a list of 50 movies that he has to see, and uh, I threw Heat on there. Great ass! That's my that's, that's my Pacino. That's the extent of my Pacino. We say goodbye, Rob, Don, Joe. Thank you all for joining us. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the.